If you were looking for someone to blame or praise for prime time in the 80s, you need look no further than this man, Fred Silverman. In the 70s, the master programmer for CBS, NBC, and ABC. He brought us Roots and Sheriff Lobo, MASH and Super Train, the best of times and the worst of times. What is trash on television? What is trash? Well, I guess there's, uh, I could say there's good trash and there's bad trash. Uh, Give me an example. Well, when Rich Man, Poor Man was on the air as a miniseries, I don't think that show would ever win a Peabody. That was good trash. It was very entertaining. Bad trash. Bad trash are just shows that uh, aren't well executed. They, uh, they aren't up to the standards of, uh, you know, what they're supposed to be. It's time, once again, to hear about one of the many nightmarish failures of our patron saint. It's one of the many televised follies perpetrated by Fred Silverman for induction. Intellihel. One of the staples of television during its first three decades was that of the variety show. This was a type of show that combined various elements of sketch comedy, musical performances, and guest stars. Sometimes the combination of the three would be on an even keel. Other times, there is more of one element than the other being put on display. But as long as an hour of content is filled, and the audience at home and in the studio is entertained, who's to complain? Variety shows were a bigger deal in the 50s and 60s, when shows like Ed Sullivan, Your Show of Shows, and various other eponymously titled programs reign supreme. And now, ladies and gentlemen, there he is, Mr. Television himself, your Tuesday night Cinderella, Milton Burrow. By the 1970s, however, the format reached a critical mass that it would never see again. All was going relatively well, until various paradigm shifts began to take place near the end of the decade, where variety shows were no longer in vogue, mostly cable TV related, but also the fact that more people were willing to tune in to the trending nighttime soap operas with ongoing juicy stories, the juiciest of which was about to take place. It was you, Kristen, who shot J.R. Dallas, among many other shows, were part of a growing trend that helped propel the CBS network to continued dominance as the number one network for practically most of its existence. Not to be outdone, ABC was still riding high with a steady stream of shows that helped them maintain their number one rating among the coveted 18 to 49-year-old demographic. And, of course, this also meant that one other TV network was left twisting in the wind with table scraps. I think we've mentioned NBC's 1970s misfortunes more than enough times around here this year. And yet, we feel as though we've only reached the tip of the iceberg. But yes, it's true. The Peacock was comfortably perched in third place, throwing out just about anything against the wall to see if it was a hit or not. But not unlike 30 Rock's Jack Donaghy, all of NBC's follies weren't foisted onto the public in an effort to tank the network on purpose. Your next word 
is stare. Okay, um, the things you climb no. to get... it's the other one. It's always the other one. Let me see the card. No! Never! No, a lot of NBC's efforts of the 70s, particularly the late 70s, were made just like any other series at any other network, all with the best of intentions and trying to cash in on whatever trends were on the rise at the time. It just so happens that NBC was responsible for chasing after trends the most back then, while the other networks learned when to leave well enough alone and move on to the next thing. As the decade changed over into the 80s, it also turned out to be a lesson that Fred Silverman had to learn the hard way. With the network floundering in 1979, and only very minor hits in prime time, Silverman took it upon himself to come up with numerous silver bullets that would help rid NBC of its cursed luck. There was much positive press when Silverman announced that a new NBC peacock for the next decade would be introduced in the 79 fall season, which may have been eye candy to some viewers, but industry experts felt that it was just a facade to help cover up the network's obvious problems in prime time. Incidentally, the network had no major problems in either its morning, daytime, late night, sports, or news counterparts. But since prime time makes up the budget for most major television networks, even the failing ones, the problems there overshadowed any of the small victories in comparison. Still, though, Silverman did what he could to keep the network from getting hobbled further, not just in the ratings, but financially even going so far as to obtain the rights to the 1980 Summer Olympics in Moscow. But as the old saying goes, who knows what tomorrow will bring? Of course, that was more of a long-term plan that blew up in the network's face. With shows getting canceled left and right, Silverman was looking for a prime-time miracle, possibly the second one to happen in 1980. Which brings us to the island nation of Japan, which, in 1980, already started the year with its own newsmaking event. I got arrested in uh, Tokyo at one point later in the story um, for carrying marijuana. You can see the guy opening my suitcase, and right on the top is this big bag of grass. And... You know, I didn't even put it in a sweater or put it, hide it. But that's irrelevant to our subject. Aside from a baked beetle, one other thing was taking Japan by storm and had actually been doing so since 1976. They were a singing duo who just one year earlier made history by becoming one of two Japanese artists to hit American music charts when their song, Kiss in the Dark, squeaked its way onto the Billboard Top 40. Don't let the English fool you, though. For this and a number of their songs, the duo had to learn the words phonetically. As much fun as they had singing the song, there was a good chance that they probably had no idea what they were singing about in the first place. We assume, of course. The singers were one Mitsuyo Nemoto and Keiko Masuda, or as they would be known in the short form, Ni and K. Put both of them together, and you would have the seemingly unstoppable Pacific juggernaut known as Pink Lady. And when we say juggernaut, there's no exaggeration. Just listen to how loud the crowds were at just one of their concerts back then. 
Most musicians of then and now wishes they had the fan base that Pink Lady had, even in Japan, where it turns out a lot of failed American artists seem to have the most success. To say nothing of the fact that between album sales, concert appearances, and even TV commercials, Pink Lady were pulling in the American equivalent to $100 million a year. Adjusted for 2020 inflation, that's about $313 million. The surprise success of Kiss in the Dark in the United States gave the duo hope that their success would transcend Japan and spread to other parts of the world. Somebody else who thought that? You guessed it. Fred Silverman. Upon watching a news story about Pink Lady's success, as well as the big profit margin they were bringing in, Silverman was so convinced that he found his silver bullet for NBC that he recruited some old friends not only to make the international superstars more palatable to American audiences, but do so in a way that they had become familiar with in recent years. To people of a certain age, you couldn't think of Saturday mornings without thinking of Sid and Marty Croft, two Canadian brothers who struck it big in the world of children's programming in the late 60s, thanks to the oversized puppeteering marvels they created for shows like The Banana Splits and H.R. Puffin Stuff. Then their success bloomed greater in the 70s thanks to classics like The Bugaloos, Sigmund and the Sea Monsters, and Land of the Lost, among others. So successful they were in the morning that the network soon decided to take a chance on them for prime time in the 70s. One particular network was ABC, who in the mid-70s was being propelled to number one for the first time in its history thanks to the visionary decisions of its head of entertainment. If you don't know who by now, please try to keep up. Silverman, now at NBC, tapped the Crofts to recapture Lightning in a Bottle the same way they did for Donnie and Marie Osmond four years earlier. But while they were up to the task of putting on a show for a pair of performers who were known to certain parts of the world, there was one major obstacle standing in the way. As we mentioned on their biggest American hit song, it was actually sung phonetically in English. Otherwise, the duo knew little to none of the language at all. So... How can a singing duo who can barely speak English translate well to American TV audiences? Enter an up-and-coming comedian named Jeff Altman. Hey, Dad. Sorry, dude. Just put a tent in your new truck. Look, don't give me that kind of bullshit, buddy. Because I'll flip you like a cheese omelet, pal. I'll hit you so hard your kids will be born dizzy, and I can do it, you know, Altman's career was just beginning to take off by the start of 1980. Already a rising star in the stand-up comedy circuit, Altman was also a mainstay in various TV commercials and guest shots on sitcoms, but he had yet to land a major starring role in anything by that point. By 1979, his highest-profile role was a guest spot on WKRP in Cincinnati as a sleazy record promoter. Whatever the circumstances were that led up to 1980... Altman wound up catching NBC's attention. Because faster than you can say holding deal contract, Altman was placed under a holding deal contract for the network. And for those curious to add new words to your showbiz glossary, a holding deal is a contract between an artist and a representing agency. Valid while the agency is developing a movie, television program, live performance act, album, or other entertainment venue for an artist. In this case... NBC can use Altman for whatever project they wish to place him in at any time during the length of the contract. 
or as Altman himself would put it in the show's first episode via Walter Cronkite impression. Good evening, this is Walter Cronkite. Well, in our top story tonight, after 20 seconds of grueling deliberation and an offer of over $86, semi-obscure comedian Jeff Altman today told NBC he'd do any show they wanted. That's the way it is. Altman's official capacity on the show would be as Pink Lady's so-called interpreter. But in actuality, he would carry the load for most of whatever comedy was supposed to take place. In addition to Altman's inclusion, the network insisted that Pink Lady would be singing their own unique interpretations of existing American hit songs, instead of the songs that made them household names to begin with. Which, I don't see backfiring at all now, do I? And now that NBC and the Crofts had both their stars and their gimmick aligned, there was one other trick up Silverman's sleeve to ensure that people would be watching the show. After all, what would an overblown variety show be without guest stars? If NBC's experience with Super Train was any indication, the network wasn't ashamed to pay top dollar in order to have a hit show under their belt, even if it meant going into the red. To that end, NBC reportedly spent upwards of $100,000 per guest star to secure their talents and hopefully convince them that what they would be appearing on would not only become the next big thing, but also the thing that would keep the variety show format alive and well into the 80s. Unfortunately, because of just how bottom-feeding NBC's ratings were back then, the best they could get at any price included the likes of former Miss America MC Burt Parks, Playboy publisher Hugh Hefner, old-school comedy scion Sid Caesar, and pillars of music from the 50s and 60s Roy Orbison and Bobby Vinton. Truly, NBC swung for the fences and got nothing but the best talent, if this were 1962. NBC played up the arrival of Pink Lady in a big way, touting them as the act of the 80s, all throughout promos that aired around the clock during February sweeps of 1980. But when the time came for their debut, would audiences accept the duo as the next big thing? Would there be a major loss in translation? Or would this become the nail in the coffin for the network? The answer to all three of those questions will be revealed after the break. I've heard Gerald Euphemian has more power than Dave Casper. More power? Him? I have new right guard power pump antiperspirant. So, I got band basic. For most people, Dave, right guard's formula has uh, more power. <laughs> For some, up to twice as much. Power against wetness. What's more, you can spray uh, twice as much band basic and still not match the power of right guard. New right guard power pump. Don't get dressed without it. バニラに香りの宝石を散りばめました。唇に宝石を。雪印宝石箱。今なら宝石が当たります。
The fires of Telehell are powered by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at P-O-D-G-O dot C-O. March 1st, 1980. The Iranian hostage crisis reaches its fourth month. The Voyager 1 space probe confirms a new moon off of Saturn. And at 9 p.m., 8 p.m. Central and Mountain, NBC's fate fell into the hands of what some would hope would become the musical act of the 1980s, even though the decade was about two months old by that point. Welcome to Pink Lady! Starring Jeff Orton and B&K! By the way, we should probably point out that while the show had become commonly known as Pink Lady and Jeff over time, the show, when it originally aired, was simply known as Pink Lady. We're pretty certain that the and Jeff part was the result of legal action, either that or the Mandela effect is in effect. Altman enters the stage in mild disbelief and introduces himself to America this way. I don't believe this. Here I am, I'm out here uh, co-hosting a new show with Pink Lady and... It's amazing to me, really. I'm, I'm so excited. I'll tell you why. See, because it, it seems to me like just yesterday, in fact, it was yesterday, I was doing small clubs and maybe occasionally a talk show or something, and I guess the thing I regret is that I just wish my mom and dad could have been here tonight to share this moment with me, but they're next door in the Studio B watching Merv Griffin interview his suit. <laughs> And that, by the way, is pretty much the extent of Altman's act over the next 40 years. More corn than the American Midwest. Not that there's anything wrong with being corny, but this is primetime television. And there's a big difference between bringing your A-game and having an A for effort. After a few light-hearted crowd-pleasers, Altman then proceeds to let the audience know exactly what he got himself into. Anyway, tonight, ladies and gentlemen, you're about to see the American TV debut of Japan's biggest recording stars, Pink Lady. Now, when I say big, trust me for a second. Just take a look at this film clip of one of their recent concerts in Japan. I wish I had the tempura concession on that. Hold it! Yeah, we should also probably mention that since this was the early 80s, political correctness wasn't as exploited to the nth degree as it is in this day and age. That being said, there's more than likely going to be a couple of what a few friends of mine call ethnic whoopsie-doos here and there that may or may not poke fun at the Asian community. And if anybody from that community happens to be listening, please don't take any of what you're about to hear too seriously. Now then, after a brief introduction, we finally get to meet this super duo face-to-face. And suffice to say, they're at least as charming as advertised. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome me and Kay, the wonderful Pink Lady. Now, I'll be the first to admit that I don't know Japanese culture at all. But based on some cliff notes, the music of ancient Japan has been known to be very peaceful, soothing, and stress-relieving. And while music in Japan has hyper-evolved into what's now known as J-pop today, it still manages to act as a descendant of the music from centuries past in a way that honors ancestral traditions while still keeping its eye to the future. That being said, here's how Pink Lady honors those traditions. (laughs) 
That's right. The all-time classic Japanese spiritual tune, Boogie Wonderland, is how they start things off. Like we said, NBC and Pink Lady's American record labels insisted that the duo perform versions of other existing hit songs, even though it was the duo's own songs that garnered them fame in the first place. Why? Because showbiz. That's why. Once certain people get into bed with others, the result could turn out to be one strange brainchild. And it's also here where we see the first results of phonetic English in play. Don't get me wrong, the girls are certainly giving it their all here. But Five Bucks says they probably don't even know what Boogie Wonderland means, even as they're belting out the tune. Nevertheless, the show pressed on, and the audience was somewhere between aghast and confused over what they were watching. And we haven't even reached the actual comedy portion of the show yet. Also, while we're on the subject of boogieing, have we mentioned that this was 1980? You know, the year that disco music was either dead, on life support, or still existing as a zombie? So naturally, it sounded like a surefire thing to put on TV at that moment. And with two people from out of the country singing the ever-loving hell out of it. If this was the duo's introduction to America, I fear to think what the comedy in the show was going to look like. And remember, these two are the stars of our show. Aside from Jeff Altman. That was a traditional Japanese number? You didn't like our song, Jeff? Oh, no, no, no. I, I, I love the song. It's just that I didn't realize your honorable ancestors had boogie fever. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I should tell you at this point that this is me and this is Kay. Right. From there, we get a more formal introduction to the duo. And we also see that soon-to-be legendary chemistry between Pink Lady and Jeff. Now, you girls do speak English. Oh, yes. We spent many, many hours in Japan learning. We wanted to speak perfect English when we got here. Oh, and you speak English, too. Yes. Do you? <laughs> and it's my painful duty to inform you that it's only going to get worse from here. Like, try to picture somebody forming a snowball at the peak of Japan's Mount Fuji, and then proceeding to roll it down the hill in slow motion. Right now, the snowball is the size of a tennis ball. What does it mean when they say you are a real hustler? Real hustler. <laughs> it, uh... <laughs> Uh, it, it, it means it means uh, I'm a hustler. I do the dance, the hustle, a hustler. As the snowball now reaches the size of a softball, and more verbal malaprops take place, Altman asks just how the girls would handle themselves in a part of the world they've never been in before. We have with us uh, Japanese. We say bodyguard. What? Bodyguard. Bodyguard. Just then, a sumo wrestler breaks through a paper-thin wall. Hilarity ensues, and the audience changes the channel to the Dukes of Hazard in record time. That's no joke, by the way. NBC put this show on opposite the Dukes of Hazard in an effort to knock it down a peg, which makes about as much sense as fighting a war with peace shooters and cardboard armor while the other side has Kevlar and combat rifles. The show finally kicks off with an actual sketch. Or should we say mini-sketches, using the girls and a giant boombox green-screen hybrid as a framing device. It's 68 degrees and we're coming at you with all the boss sounds, right here on your radio dial. All right. One where they introduce Altman as a series of, shall we say, interpretations of how certain radio stations sounded back in the day. 
everything from religious formats. Give me your hands, give me your hearts, give me your souls, and give me a small love offering. Anything you have, I take all credit cards. Anything at all, mama. Yep. To sports radio. My name is Leonard Moon, and I don't have the brain of an ice cube. Of sadistic and disgusting thrill do you receive from watching your opponent lying unconscious on the floor? I don't know. I have never had that happen to me. To Altman, acting as one of Hell's permanent residents, selling his tapes without an 18-minute gap in the middle. Ladies and gentlemen, put your hearts and hands together for Disco Dick Nixon and the Richard Nixon Soul Review. My fellow Americans, let me be very serendipity when I say oh, this song is available on tape. Everything I've ever done is available on tape. No. I'm still younger than Ronald Reagan. One of these guys are Suffice to say, the segment is funny in the same way that laughing gas makes you laugh. In that it doesn't. It just leaves you paralyzed in a state of disbelief while pain is being inflicted on you at the same time. As our Mount Fuji snowball is now the size of a basketball, we return to the main stage for more awkward, flirtatious banter between our hosts. You said you were going to get us some big name stars on the show. Yes, so far. All we've seen is you. <laughs> All right, now, girls, listen, you got to trust me. I got calls into Brando, McQueen, Newman. Yes. Yes. We got somebody. You got somebody. <laughs> Look, I appreciate what you're trying to do for me here, girls, but in order to get a big-name star on the show, you've really got to know your way around the town. <laughs> we do. We got to map to the stars' homes. Just then, a wild George Jefferson appears, as Sherman Helmsley is one of the myriad of stars from other networks who is willing to take one of NBC's six-figure paydays in order to make an appearance on a bigger car accident than the Ford Pinto loaded with firecrackers. <laughs> Look, I know you girls are new in America, so if there's anything you need... Don't hesitate to ask. Uh, wait a minute, isn't that supposed to be my job? Oh, thank you, Sherman. From there, we segue ourselves into a USO show of long ago. For no apparent reason whatsoever. We asked the audience, what if women were drafted during World War II? A mere 35 years after it ended, but they never promised that the show would be topical in the first place. Hey, you talk about luck, man. I've been married six times. Right when I was between husbands... They slapped me with a draft notice. Well, that's better. You know, the army isn't too bad. Except the food is rotten. That's S-O-S. Yes. Sushi on the shingle. And while we wonder why Juilliard didn't offer any of the girls' speed acting classes, we get more role reversals as an MC introduces who the women are fighting for if there was a war going on. As Altman comes on as a Mr. America who's going to keep me awake at night for bad reasons. Namely, the open shirt gold chains look that was in vogue back then. Ugh. Well, that is somebody, Joe. Well, you know, Bobby, I don't really consider it my body. It, it actually belongs to all of America. I'm just wearing it for you. Hey, let me try it on! And let's check in with the size of that snowball rolling down Mount Fuji. Okay, we've gone from the size of a basketball to the size of a vinyl album. We'll check in later. Meanwhile, Sherman Helmsley comes out wearing an outfit I can only describe as coming from the Angus Young collection, as he and similarly dressed backup singers come out to perform for the troops. She was the cutest little secretary you've ever seen. She made the bosses coffee and she kept the disc lean. One day she got a little 
A friendly reminder that Helmsley was reportedly paid as much as $100,000 for this appearance. At the rate things are going here, we're not sure if he took the offer just so he could act as a double agent for CBS to help torpedo the show, even though airing opposite the Dukes of Hazard could have done that for them anyway. We begin our second half with an introduction to TV's Burt Parks, who, as Altman explains, was recently let go from his long-standing position as the host of the Miss America Beauty Pageant, which was once a thing that aired on broadcast TV, until John Oliver knocked it down several pegs a few years ago. But I digress. Parks, or an obvious acrobatic stuntman disguised as Parks, cartwheels his way onto the stage, because variety shows got a variety show itself in the cheesiest of ways. In spite of his Miss America firing, the real park swaps out Altman to introduce a segment called... Why don't you introduce our cultural spot? Your cultural spot. <laughs> Please don't make me bang a gong every time I see or hear something that's culturally questionable. Please? This is Art Nouveau here for Art Nouveau's Culture City, the West largest dealer in new and used objects of the arts. Hey, we're up to our armpits here in culture. We got okay, so we see Altman as every local TV salesman that ever existed since the dawn of time selling priceless museum pieces as though they're lawn ornaments. Seems innocent enough, right? That's why we're going to be showing you a documentary about Holland Perky, Holland Perky of Mutual Atona Paz, Mild Kingdom. You're going to love it. It shows you the animals and everything. Kids will love it. That's something, huh? Okay. We then segue abruptly to a parody of the old Wild Kingdom series. Altman is portraying Marlon Perkins as he and his Jim Fowler stand-in go in search of... You'll see me slap my assistant Jim into a sudden daze and then force him to see a screening of the movie 1941. We'll go in search of John Belushi's career. Hey, that's not fair. If anybody's career needs to be searched for in the Belushi bloodline, it's Jim's. Hey, 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 I told you I was getting to it. You can't fight Murphy's Law and you can't make me. Anyway, that's the sketch, a parody of tacky commercials that aired in the late 70s and early 80s. That was what the show considered to be their culture spot. Oh, give me a break. Velvet paintings of Elvis have more culture than that. Please try harder to make us laugh. Ladies and gentlemen, the fabulous Blondie. We then cut to an arguable highlight of the episode as we are treated to a performance by Blondie, which, unfortunately, we have to put air quotes on the word performance, and here's why. Thanks to Pink Lady's connection to their record labels, both Elektra and Curb Records, the network was also able to secure concert footage and also some film material of more contemporary acts like Blondie and, in a future episode, Cheap Trick, a group that knows a thing or two about playing to a Japanese audience. I want you to want me. The thing is, though, they're not actually appearing on the show itself, but rather show video of them performing their music. Music put to video. Sounds like a crazy concept for 1980s television, don't you think? But once again, I digress. Even though we're clearly seeing Blondie in front of us, and even though they are indeed performing a song for viewers desperate enough not to watch TV static for an hour, this whole quote-unquote appearance feels like the show is cheating somehow. Like if a TV show touted an appearance by any given president of the United States and then only showing clips from random press conferences. It deceives the viewer into thinking that one element is part of the show. 
when in reality, it's all prefabbed material. Credit where credit is due, however, even though Shayla is one of their sleepier deep cuts, the song itself kicks ass because Debbie Harry will always be the godmother of Manic Pixie Dream Girls. Getting back to actual comedy, or a reasonable facsimile of it, we soon take part in a recurring spy parody called The Adventures of the Pink Falcon. And it's here where we get to see the full range of Pink Lady's Emmy Award-lacking acting talent. Aha! So, we meet again, Pink Falcon. Now, this time, you're not going to get away. <laughs> There's nothing you can do that will make me change my mind. Not even this? I don't know. That worked last time. What have you got for me, sweetheart? How about your knuckle sandwich? There you have it, ladies and gentle demons. The 1980s first entry into the echelons of great TV dialogue. Just as a reminder, the 50s had this. Lucy, I'm home! The 60s had this. Sock it to me! The 70s had this. E. And March of 1980 brings us. How about your knuckle sandwich? I would go over the rest of the sketch, but honestly, those words right there are pretty hard to top. So, let's move on to our next sketch, where Altman does a passable Johnny Carson, a.k.a. the only other personality on NBC to turn in a profit at that time. He interviews the girls briefly before introducing a stand-up comedian from Japan, and... Uh-oh. This is gonna be one of those culturally insensitive parts, isn't it? How big is that Mount Fuji snowball now? My... God, it's now the size of an armored car. Well, maybe this won't be so bad. How hot was he? Yeah,すごい。すごい。ああ、すごい。ああ、すごい。ああ、すごい。ああ、すごい。ああ、すごい。ああ、すごい。ああ、すごい。ああ、すごい。ああ、すごい。ああ、すごい。ああ、すごい
to Burt Parks again, now dressed as one of those old-timey movie directors who wears a beret as he auditions full crowds for a scene in a disaster movie. You're on the subway platform. You're a little impatient because the train is late. And you look to your left, and you're shocked. The train is coming towards you. It is off the track, and you scream. You hit the deck. The danger has passed. You get up. You heave a sigh of relief. Give me your resume and a picture. Don't call us. We'll call you. And it goes on and on and on until all the screwy Valley Hooey comes to a stop. The final segment is one more Japanified American song from the duo, which, again, they try their best on. Perhaps because NBC was only too eager to make sure that American audiences would accept the duo right away, perhaps they overdid it a little on the course correction. And while the songs they sing are indeed valiant efforts, it's still pretty jarring to sit through. Though not half as jarring as what happens next. I've seen mood swings in my day, but to go from you've got a friend to don't stop to knock on wood. It feels like I'm witnessing the TV equivalent of schizophrenia. On that note, how big has our snowball become now? Oh my, it's become the size of a limousine. Maybe we better start racing for impact. Anyway, we come to the end of our show. And I'd like to thank our fabulous guests, Blondie, Sherman Hemsley, and of course, Mr. Burt Parks. Of course, I'd also like to thank our comedy players, Jim Varney, Anna Mathias, Sherry Eichen. Wait a minute, wait, 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 what? Of course, I'd also like to thank our comedy players, Jim Varney. Hold on. Ernest P. World was in this show? Where? Rewind the tape. Let's see, he wasn't in the radio sketch, he wasn't in the USO sketch, he wasn't in the culture spots, he certainly wasn't a Japanese comedian. Uh, wait a minute, right there. You're on the subway platform, you're a little impatient because the train is late. And you look to your left, and you're shocked. The crowd scene audition. Jim Varney could barely be seen in the crowd scene audition. And that's all we're going to be seeing of him in this episode? Screw you, NBC. We got promised a free earnest Jim Varney, and this was all you could give us? You deserve to be in last place in 1980. And now our legal department is telling us to add that although Varney barely appears here in the pilot, he did become a lot more prevalent in subsequent episodes of the show. Not that it made much of a difference here, but I can certainly guarantee that the show would have survived if they introduced Ernest P. World there in the first place. Anyway, we conclude with what is arguably the part of the program that the few who have actually seen this show remembers best. The part where they wrap things up by getting into a hot tub together. God, I wish... No, this being a sit-in Marty Croft production, it has to be cheesier than the state of Wisconsin. We have Japanese custom. At the end of the day, time to go into hot tub. Time to go into hot tub? No, I don't go into hot tub. 
This end of the show, by the way, turned out to be a major thorn of contention for Altman, citing that for comedy purposes, doing the hot tub shtick every single week would make the gag more and more contrived. But the powers that be ignored Altman's pleas, citing the notion that viewers simply wanted to see the duo in skimpy bathing suits, possibly as a reward for the hour of cringe they just sat themselves through. This could be the start of a beautiful relationship. Um, I like this. Whoa! I hope we've got some extra soap. <laughs> Sign on. And so ends the first episode of Pink Lady and Jeff. NBC's Hail Mary into having a successful TV season under the watch of Fred Silverman. As is the case with just about every new offering on TV, there was always the hope that after hyping something to the nth degree, people would at least tune in to see the first episode and find out what all the fuss is about. But in Pink Lady's case... It didn't even have a snowball's chance in hell. In all seriousness, though, not only did viewers soundly reject the show, but perhaps even the show itself felt it was doomed from the start, as we'll explain in just a second. So, where does TV's equivalent to a kamikaze attack bonsai itself into telehell? Well, if you allow me to use the tongue of the rising sun, and forgive me if I mispronounce a syllable or two... God, I hope that was correct. Limbo, lust, gluttony, greed, wrath, heresy, violence, fraud, treachery. The reported $100,000 that NBC paid for guest stars was pretty steep. Not just for the people we already mentioned to come on the show, but also the likes of Larry Hagman, a.k.a. J.R. Ewing from Dallas, and even comedy icon Jerry Lewis, reportedly getting the higher end of these paydays. Deep pockets can also breed deep desperation, especially if the gambit fails spectacularly. So we throw in a point for greed... and gluttony. Due to the fact that the network could have used that extra money to come up with alternate programming once the Summer Olympics of 1980 blew up in their face as well. The behind-the-scenes stuff wound up making a bad situation even worse. Despite how cheerful everybody looked on the show, between various production issues, including the girls flying back and forth between the U.S. and Japan for concerts, constant network interference insisting that the girls perform songs in English, creative differences between Silverman and the Croft brothers over how the show would be presented, trying to book guests who were willing to appear on a type of show that was a dying breed in 1980, and even complaints from Jeff Altman that his name wasn't even in the title despite doing most of the performing on the show, it's no wonder that the show made a stellar debut as one of the lowest-rated shows of the season. All the backstage and network-related drama are solid cases of treachery. It should also come as no surprise to find out that the show only lasted five episodes out of six produced. And while that elusive sixth show wound up making it eventually on a 2001 DVD release of the series, it's how the show was originally presented that matters here. So it barely qualifies for a spot in Limbo. Let's also not forget the use of prefabbed musical performances by people who weren't even in the show in the first place. Yeah, it helped fill the time, but it also felt like a cheap shortcut that wasn't necessary. And because these acts weren't actually on the show, the viewing audiences were tricked into believing that they were, marking it down for fraud. 
And of course, Silverman's insatiable, almost obsessive desire to come up with a hit show for NBC resulted in a fiasco that the network would be hurting from for years to come. Obsession and lust do go hand in hand sometimes. But just in case the definition is too vague in this case, let's not forget about the ongoing hot tub gag at the end of each show, as the audience will lust for completely different reasons. Then again, if you had to sit through a show like this, you'd want to be rewarded with scantily clad women too. Admit it. Pink Lady and Jeff earn six out of nine circles of telehell. NBC was clearly desperate for a hit show in 1980, so much so that Fred Silverman acted on his golden gut without first double-checking if it would break any language barriers. But no, Freddy jumped the gun either out of eagerness or pure desperation. The sad thing about this show is the same thing that befalls a number of failures. There was some legitimate talent behind the scenes and in front of the camera, but the execution of it all turned the end product into a different kind of execution. Preferably, one by firing squad. Even more so, this was one failure that NBC wouldn't live down for some time, becoming cannon fodder for Johnny Carson's monologues, and even SNL taking a shot at the folly by having Jeff be replaced by Harry Shearer as Carl Sagan. Ironically enough, that was also the same episode where future Senator Al Franken had some choice words to say about the guy who signs his paycheck. The guy's been here two years, and he hasn't done diddly squat. And he gets a limo. Now, here's a list of the top ten rated shows this season in TV. Now, there's there's some A's there, some B's, some C's, some uh, S's. You see those? You see any N's? No. Not one N. Why? Because Silverman is a lame <laughs> But he still gets limousine service. I like to call it a limo for the lame And that, ladies and gentle demons, is another can of worms that are best left said on another podcast, specifically the ones that coined the phrase ethnic whoopsie-doos. They know who they are. But as far as Silverman's relationship with NBC went... Pink Lady and Jeff was marked as the beginning of the end of his tenure there. He would limp along as the network's president for one more season, and even garner a few critically acclaimed but low-rated hits under his gut before ultimately getting replaced by Grant Tinker and Brandon Tartikoff in 1981. The saddest part of all, however, wasn't that an obvious failure blew up in his face with him staring directly at a lit fuse but rather the fact that he didn't completely learn some of the lessons he was supposed to learn four years earlier when he previously teamed up with Sid and Marty Croft on a show that, if you can believe it, somehow turned out to be even worse than Pink Lady and Jeff in the grand scheme of things. Next time on Telehell. Our season comes to a merciful end with a look at a cheap cash-in that will have the audience begging for mercy. What I really am is an architect, and my family wanted this variety show. You know, it was their idea. I I didn't want to do it. Now, I'm an entertaining architect. (laughs) Until then. If it's not in telehell, it's not worth a damn. Telehell was written, produced, edited, and narrated by me, Justin Hart. 
All clips used in this program are protected under the Fair Use Doctrine of the U.S. Copyright Act of 1976. And all clips used come courtesy of their respective companies and owners. Some of the music used in this program comes courtesy of YouTube and their audio library service. Telehell is a production of Horton Road and is distributed by Libsyn. There's now more ways to listen to Telehell than ever before. Of course, the usual ways, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and our website, telehell.libsyn.com, but also these new places, including castbox.fm, podtail.com, listennotes.com, mytuner-radio.com, and blueberry, which is spelled B-U-L-B-R-R-Y.com. We'll have many more coming soon. And as always, don't forget to like, comment, rate, subscribe, and share on our social feeds. Twitter and Facebook, both at Telehell Podcast.